Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. My next guest made her international TV debut in a series called Xena the Warrior Princess, where she played Eve and Livia. She's also been in such things as As If. She's been in a TV show called Star Trek Renegades. And she's also voiced characters in Star Wars Clone Wars and in other Star Wars action games. She's also done a little bit of producing, and she's now a creative consultant. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and let's find out more about her. See you there. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios Presents Stories. Today on the show, my next guest was introduced to the world as as Livia and as Eve on the hit TV show Xena the Warrior Princess. Little did she know that the show has become the most loved show there was. And then she went on to do other things in other shows such as ER and Charmed and As If. She's voice acted and now she's producing. So please welcome Adrian Wilkinson to the show. Thanks so much for having me. What a lovely intro. You're welcome. So as I always like to start off, so why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, you definitely kind of covered it. Um, I'm I'm known to the world as a, uh, an actor, <laughs> that sounded terrible, but I am, I am known as an actress. Uh, I come initially from the Midwest, though I've lived in California for a long time now. Um, I have acted, I've produced, I've directed a bit. Uh, I also now I'm working as a consultant, which I absolutely love. And, you know, it's, this will be a very interesting year. I'm really excited to jump into it because I have no idea what's going to happen post-strike and mm -hmm. how the industry will rebound and change and all of that. So it will be really interesting from all of those perspectives, actually, to see how it all works out. That kind of brings up a question I had. What did, how did you keep yourself busy during that strike? I mean, that was like one <laughs> of the longest strikes that we have seen for actors and writers. Uh, it was. It was the first time that the actors have been on strike, I think, since the 60s. Uh, it's only the second time they'd ever been on strike. And, uh, you know, there was a lot at stake. And uh, whew, we will, we have yet to see how that will all work out, but it was really important because technology is changing so quickly mm -hmm. that there were a lot of things that really did need to be addressed for the industry as we know it to have a chance of surviving. Uh, but I don't think anyone really, mm, I shouldn't say that. I was about to say, I don't think anyone expected it would take that long, but I actually heard predictions about it from the very beginning. So uh, I think there were multiple camps of thought but I think it was surprising to a lot of people that it took as long as it did. Um, I kept myself busy with this absolutely <laughs> ridiculous project where I had never been on TikTok in my life, but it was during the writer's strike, there was a Xena day where uh, several of the cast members, we all showed up to support the writers and uh, about 150 fans also showed up to support us. Wow. And in addition, we also had this cardboard Xena cutout. And about three or four days after that, some poster, uh, uh, pardon me, photos from the event were posted online. And I laughed out loud because it looked like me and Renee O'Connor, who played Gabrielle, 
it looked like me and Gabby and my mom, Zena, were on vacation at Universal Studios. <laughs> These photos just looked so funny to me. And I thought, wait a minute, I should make that. We should be on vacation in Southern California. And uh, I reached out to someone, to an acquaintance of mine, and asked if they knew where I could find one of these cardboard Xenas. And miraculously, she said, oh, there's one in my garage. <laughs> I was I was kind of shocked and uh, thrilled by that, but it also meant I had absolutely no excuse not to try the show. So I immediately jumped in. Uh, I created, I think it's more than 300 episodes at this point. It's a comedy series. There's a few angles to it that all still crack me up when I talk about it. Um, the main one is Xena is not cardboard. She's real. She's just not speaking to me. So I'm going out of my way, doing everything I can to try to impress my mom. And she's just stone cold. She's just giving me the silent treatment, which of course just makes me try harder. And the other angle to the show, which I love, is that... Uh, I love the fact that we are ancient Roman warriors who have sort of time traveled to the future. So we have no understanding of modern culture. So we keep trying to fit in and we just get it wrong every step of the way, which is really funny because we have this perspective of being warriors and living in ancient times. And, you know, so the stuff that's important today just isn't important to us. And we just keep misunderstanding and then sort of the, the final part of the show is that because my mother's refusing to speak to me, I decide we need to try this modern thing called online therapy. And so I've had a lot of really fantastic guest stars, including cast members from Xena that have appeared as therapists for us as we keep trying to, um, you know, get through our issues. And I mean, it's absolutely absurd. On one hand, it's the, the dumbest thing I've ever done, but it's also so delightful and um, I I'm loving it. I expect there's about a month left in the storyline before it all wraps up. So, uh, but there's hundreds of episodes to enjoy at your leisure. And when I say episodes, they're of course bite-sized. They're generally about a minute long, some shorter, some slightly longer. But uh, yeah, if you have time to kill and would like a chuckle, <laughs> you can find it on TikTok. All right, so what interested you in acting? Well, I grew up as a dancer. Uh, I've been on stage as a dancer since I was a tiny child. And uh, I honestly fell into acting. I always thought it was interesting from afar, but it never occurred to me growing up in the Midwest that it was something you could make a living at. But I actually did fall into it. I was getting my senior portraits taken. I was just barely 16 years old, turning 17, or pardon me, I was just barely 17 years old. And I I went to get my photos taken for my, my yearbook and I was upsold to this acting class. I just didn't really know how to say no. And it turned out to be this kind of miracle in my life where I took the class that weekend and it turns out it wasn't some silly local thing. It was actually casting directors who flew in from Los Angeles to teach the class. And I had no idea how important that was but they were using current material in this acting class. And I ended up getting offered a job on a soap opera out of that class. And my parents, of course, thought this was crazy, thought it was a scam. And so that opportunity passed me by, but it really lit a fire in me that something that I enjoyed doing, being on stage and performing 
could also be a way to make a living. And so I really just did a deep dive immediately. I jumped into classes and I think I learned more than a hundred monologues and I was just anything that I could do until I graduated and then had the option to move to California. Now you've done voice acting. So which would you say is harder acting or voice acting? Well, they each have their different challenges because it depends on where your skill set is. Uh, generally speaking, voice work is, of course, much simpler because you're only dealing with voice. So you could technically do that in your pajamas. A lot of people have setups at home. And it's certainly a much quicker process when you're not having to worry about makeup and wardrobe and lighting, et cetera, et cetera. But it does, it, you know, it, it depends on what your skills are and what the requests are. Uh, it can be very daunting to show up with one expected job and then someone gets a great idea and says, hey, why don't you try this Romanian slash pirate slash rabbit accent? And you're like, wait, what? My brain needs a minute to, to catch up to even try to figure that out. So it can be daunting because it's it's an active process mm -hmm. and we all have our skills and our, uh, you know, the areas we excel in. But the gorgeous part about acting is that it's very organic. And so things sort of, you know, get created and explored in the moment. And sometimes that's really easy and fantastic. And sometimes it's really challenging. And that can happen in any of the mediums. Mm -hmm. Now, do you remember your first audition for Xena as Eve and Livia? Uh, do, the audition for the show? Yeah. Uh, certainly. That's kind of a, I mean, it's, it, fans get really irritated by this story because the truth is uh, all of the information about the character was secret. Wow. The only thing that they released was that they were looking for a nemesis for the lead, Lucy Lawless. And the truth is I knew enough about television at that point that I knew there's no way there's, they're going to cast someone who looks similar to Lucy to be opposite her. It just doesn't make uh, visual sense, particularly at that time on television. I was a very busy working actor at that point and auditioning like crazy. And the truth is I was so busy that I had to pick and choose where I spent my time. And I actually turned down that audition, not once, but twice, not because I didn't want it, but because I was so busy and I had to pick and choose. And that audition seemed unrealistic to me. And they, for a few weeks, were looking and didn't find what they needed and reached back out to me. And at this point, I was available. And I was like, sure, I'll come in because I'm open to coming in at any time. I just you know, had been busy. But I came in and it, it clearly went well. <laughs> and you know, it's a, it's a joyous process. I really love the process of acting. And even most auditions, I think, are interesting as long as you're in a collaborative room that really wants to work with you to see what you can do. And I left feeling good about it, but not necessarily expecting anything because I still had a perspective of what how I thought they would cast it. I thought it would be a blonde or a redhead or some other ethnicity. And then, of course, I was hired. And only after I was hired and after I received the script and read the script did I understand that I was actually playing her daughter. So it was quite the reveal. Now, what was it like? I mean, you started out as evil as the Empress of Rome, and then all of a sudden they yes. switched you to becoming this messenger of Eli and her daughter. How was that? I mean, you uh, went from one to the other. Well, it was a bit of whiplash for sure. 
it was for me entirely unexpected because none of that had been in the audition, nor had it been discussed with me. So I didn't know any of that until we were reading, we were all at the table read, reading the brand new script live. And it really kind of threw me for a loop because I absolutely loved Livia and I did not feel finished with her. I had a lot more that I really wanted to do with that character. But of course, you know, that's not my business. My job is to do what my job is. And, and uh, you know, so I embraced Eve and figured out a way that she could make sense to me. But I will say there was uh, twice that I, after that, twice that I was able to have a bit of a flashback kind of a scenario where I got to play Livia again. And wow, did I revel in that. It just you know, just a final chance to wear those incredibly cool clothes mm. and have that attitude because it was one extreme to the other. Um, Livia was the champion of Rome. She was this fearless warrior and Eve was very meek and uh, absolutely believed in nonviolence mm -hmm. and, you know, was um, having to explore a lot of family dynamics that were difficult for her. And had a, you know, she had a moral compass where Olivia didn't. And playing evil is always more fun. So I loved the Eve storyline, but Livia was by far the more fun to play. I remember the one episode where you and your mom and Gabrielle are going to meet the Amazons. And you meet up with the second head of the Amazon tribe. And you're talking about scars and everything. And you go, hey, I'm going to show you this move. And she's like, what? I know that move. And she turns around and goes, you're the bitch of Rome, Livia. And then that when all hell breaks loose. And now you got to prove that you're no longer this person. And it's, it's Lucy's and Renee's fight. And Renee being the queen, I believe at that time, she's now the queen of the Amazon tribe. It's trying to convince them that you are no longer who you are. Uh, I have to tell you that your memory is far better than mine. Um, <laughs> I haven't watched these episodes in more than 20 years. So um, I honestly don't remember these things. Um, I certainly, I do remember that uh, Gabrielle was the Amazon queen. I certainly, I remember the scar scene between Livia and I, probably because that's something that people bring up constantly. Mm -hmm. um, that had been, at the time, that scene was kind of a riff on that famous scene from uh, Lethal Weapon, mm -hmm. where yeah. um, uh, with Rene Russo, yeah. where she was comparing scars with Mel Gibson. And so it was kind of a takeoff on that. And it was super fun to do. It was hilarious. I remember we kept bursting into laughter when we were trying to film that scene. But, you know, my memories of the show are not plot related. You know, I remember the general stuff, but my memories of the show are of the making of it. And, you know, I remember when the costumes were falling apart or <laughs> when I tripped or when, you know, someone couldn't remember a line or we got the giggles or, you know, those are the things that I remember where all of the plot details, much to the chagrin of many a, a Zenite, I simply don't remember at this point. I mean... I mean, it had to be great filming in New Zealand of all places. Oh, it was stunning. It was utterly extraordinary. New Zealand's a truly magical place. It's I've heard it described as God's blueprint, where everything that you can find in the world is all available mm -hmm. in this tiny country. 
So you have glaciers and mountains and black sand beaches, white sand beaches, sand dunes, and, you know, sort of desert areas and, and rolling hills with lots of sheep and also, you know, beautiful Auckland itself, you know, this, this thriving city. And it was lovely to be there. It was also just an incredibly, uh, I would assume it's still the same, but at the time, I remember being so charmed by how safe and sort of small town it felt, mm -hmm. even when being in the biggest city. Uh, when I arrived, they there was a bit of a welcome basket waiting for me, and in it was a tourist guide to New Zealand. Yeah. And on one of the very first pages of the tourist guide, and this is you know put out by the government, uh, the tourist guide said, if you're low on cash, try hitchhiking. <laughs> I thought, wow. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a very charming culture. And, and to this day, I'm still friends with not just cast members, but lots of the crew and other people that I met there. And, you know, they're just really lovely people. Now, are you still recognized when you're out and about? Do people recognize you as being Eve and Zena, or do they recognize you from some of your other roles you've done? Um, I certainly get recognized occasionally, but it's not a big thing for me. And even when I was on the series, I wasn't recognized all that often. And I used to make jokes that it's because, you know, I mean, this is kind of an inappropriate joke, but, you know, all the women wore these huge push-up bras on the show. And, you know, in real life, I look very different <laughs> than, than either of those characters. And, you know, same thing with the the attitude and you know, Livia was so bombastic and so attention getting, but, you know, I certainly don't walk around the the world with that kind of attitude. You know? I mean, so, yeah. so yeah, on occasion, but not all that consistently. I mean, Livia was also loved by, I mean, Zena's number one fan, which was Aries. And he took a ah, liking to go. her. Uh, he did, you know, the, the, the Aries, uh, you know, Aries is kind of a Gordian knot of information that even to this day, I keep finding more about, you know, there is, there's so many ways that you can, so many perspectives that you can look at the Aries situation. Was he truly interested in Livia? Was he purely interested in the violence of her being such a warrior? Uh, what was the manipulation between Ares and Xena using uh, Livia? Uh, and then, of course, I had missed this entirely in the day because it was, a, I guess, a very small chunk of information that was sort of brought up in the show but not dealt with. But when I heard this, I have made it a point of my TikTok show that there's pos there's a possibility that Aries is actually my grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> and so it really adds a very you know, Greek layer to, you know, to, to that relationship. So, but I will say, you know, it was an absolute dream to work with Kevin. He was just incredibly talented, but so much more important to me in with, this is just across the board, so much more important to me. He was just a fantastic human. He was so lovely to talk to and to hear about. And as a, you know, as a, a Kiwi himself, he was great about telling me, you know, all about the culture and uh, what to see and what to avoid. And, you know, he was just, uh, Lucy was uh, very, very duly. Well, Lucy was, of course, dynamic. But what I was actually about to get at was that when I joined the show, Lucy had just had her baby. Oh. And so she was 
still breastfeeding. They had her on set as rarely as possible because they were, you know, she was still recovering from giving birth. And so that those first few weeks, the main person I worked with was Kevin, mm. because a lot of my work with Lucy was actually done with her stand-in. She would be there for her coverage, but when it was my coverage, it would often be a, a one of her stand-ins. And so Lucy and I get on like a house on fire. We adore each other, but and it was so fun to work with her, but it was kind of almost a slow burn because the first few weeks, I just simply didn't get to see her very much because, you know, she was yeah. still recovering. And uh, Kevin was really my guide on set. You know, he's the one who, because, you know, the sets were huge, you know, we're talking, you know, these enormous, first of all, we've filmed all over the North Island, but uh, but even just the actual studio space was huge because, you know, there were gladiatorial arenas and there were villages and, there, you know, all sorts of things. And so he was helpful, even with just logistics of like, wait, where the heck am I going? <laughs> you know, just point me in the right direction. So, you know, he was, you know, kind of an ambassador for the show for me, which was really lovely to have him there as a, you know, a support system, because the first few weeks in particular that I was on the show, it was my character was very dominant in the storyline. So I was just the hours I was working were really intense. But of course, any hours I wasn't working were filled with costume fittings and fight rehearsals and horseback riding lessons and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. So, yeah, it was pretty busy. So I'm pretty I'm guessing there were a lot of the cast was from New Zealand. Uh, I would actually say the majority of the the cast was American, mm. uh, some Europeans in there. Um, definitely the most of the extras and the the smaller guest spots were um, uh, were definitely locals. Um, you know, I love the fact that you can look at any Xena episode and it's just hugely populated by Maori people. I just think that's really interesting. Mm. <clears throat> But uh, most of the the bigger roles were going to established actors, of course, outside of Lucy being the lead of the series and Kevin himself. So, now, did you know that Xena's show literally overtook Hercules in the most watched show because of the diversity in it? Um, I. I don't know that I was really aware of those details at the time. You know, I was just busy working mm. and focusing on learning my lines and that sort of thing. Um, I certainly eventually knew the vast popularity of Xena. Um, I think there's so many things that can be, that contributed to its success. Uh, you know, the there were so many storylines oh, that yeah. they got to explore that... I think added to that. Plus, of course, you just have this extraordinary relationship between the two leads. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there was just, I think that maybe without knowing it, television and culture in general, were mm -hmm. just really calling out for a powerful female character yeah. like that. You know, it's, so it was very easily embraced by a lot of cultures. And it was also incredibly easy to translate into multiple mm -hmm. languages, which is why it ended up, one of the reasons why it ended up uh, as the biggest show in the world for a couple of years, because it was, uh, you know, good versus evil and redemption. And, you know, these are very universal storylines. I mean, I mean, it's almost like the scene. Do you remember the episode where she takes her chakram and it becomes, and she like neutralizes it and it becomes like a duel? 
uh, I mean, I, I remember having a fight scene where I caught the chakram in two pieces. Yeah. But I mean, if you're asking me about particular episodes, no. you have already left me in the dust because right. I don't. And and I also, uh, you know, the amount of the show that I have seen mm -hmm. is actually very small. Um, I had not watched the series at all once I was hired. Right. So, you are right. You know, I was it is. Lucy was not just good versus evil. It was family. It was diversity yeah. between her and her, her and her nemesis. It was, you saw a lot about her mother and then. Right. And then, I mean, my favorite episode with you has to be when you get to meet her as the ghost. Oh. After you guys defeat Mistopheles and then you realize you have this power of vanquishing evil from the area. And then you get to meet her and she's just so enthralled to get finally they get to meet her daughter Eve. Oh, I love that. Um, uh, I I appreciate hearing that perspective. It's really lovely. Now, did you like the way the direction they had you going in your in both Livia and Eve? Um, I mean, my job was not really to have an opinion about that. You know, at the time, my job was just to deliver the storyline that they created. And certainly, I'm a I'm a super collaborative person. I definitely have opinions, and I love to problem solve in the moment and. You know, it's it's my favorite part about acting is that it's a team sport. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't do it alone. It takes all of these people giving their best to get a really great product out of it. Um, I I don't really know that I can say more than I said already about how I had not expected the change, and it was it was definitely difficult for me because everything I had prepared and been expecting was all about this warrior version. And so the, the shift felt very unsatisfying to me at the time because it was so extreme. That's the part that was hard for me to sort of, you know, the, the fact that the best warrior in the, in the land would suddenly be scared to pick up a weapon and the, because, you know, it just, it represented everything she didn't want to be any longer. And the way that I sort of metabolized that in my system was to sort of think of it like addiction that she felt that if she, you know, if, if, if she took one drink or one pill, it would be all of the drinks, all of the pills. And in her case, it was weapons and violence and, you know, that she had to completely stay away from any of those instincts or they would overtake her again. And so I found a logic in that, that, uh, made sense to me. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it was satisfying because, you know, she kept ending up in trouble and needing to be rescued, which really, I found quite frustrating because she had been this incredibly savvy, smart, calculating woman. And now her mom had to rescue her every other episode. And um, I appreciated the storyline for that, but I found it a bit frustrating. And so I had to find reasons to make it make sense to me, which I, I, which I do think makes sense. And I, you know, we have to remember that the story wasn't about me. The story was about Xena. So you know, even if something didn't make full sense to me, it made sense in the broader story of Xena, which was the purpose. And so that I was fully on board with. I mean, one of the things I loved about your character is near the end, they you've become, I believe it was the Archangel Michael made you the vessel to make Xena, your mother, the killer of gods. She had the power then to kill gods. And then there was that one scene I remember where the Furies drove Gabrielle nuts and she kills you. And then she takes Ares 
up has Ares take her up to uh, Mount Olympus where she's begging for your life. And Ares just goes, Ares gives you life, giving up his godhood. And it's like the gods turns over. It's now Eli's message. Uh, I feel like you have just given me a, you know, a speed course on the storyline because I remember almost none of that. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that it's true. I know that it's there. But, you know, again, what I remember is the filming of it. Like, uh, you know, Gabrielle stabs me in the back with one of her sighs because she, um, because, yeah, she was, because uh, the Furies had overtaken her uh, or bewitched her, however the Furies thing worked. But what I remember is that that gag only works if the timing is right of my reaction, mm. but she's stabbing me in the back. So I can't see her. So I have no idea when she's <laughs> stabbing me. So what I remember is how tricky it was to film that scene to make it actually work without being able to, you know, to have any peripheral vision or anything about it. So I remember we had to see uh, film that particular moment several times until we could get it to work. Uh, I remember Gabrielle had, and maybe it's not even the same episode, but I remember these hideous contacts that she had to wear, these special effects contacts that were incredibly uncomfortable. So she was really miserable during those scenes, which I think were that episode, but maybe that was the horror episode. Um, but but yeah, I, I, I have an utter respect and love for the show and what it means to people and all of the uh, you know, the various themes that it worked with. Mm -hmm. But I mean, maybe I should have my myself a binge watch of it because I truly, it's just, it's it's one long uh, sort of complicated and perhaps slightly nonsensical memory in my mind at this point. <laughs> now you've done Star Wars and Star Trek. Would you consider yes. yourself a Trekkie or a Star Wars fan? Um, neither, not because I don't appreciate both, but because I don't think it's fair for me to wear either of those labels. I consider a Trekkie or a Trekker to be someone who's incredibly knowledgeable. And I feel the exact same way about Star Wars fans, that it's their fan base, similar to Xenites, their fan, their, you know, their fandom is about knowledge. Mm -hmm. And truthfully, I don't have any of that knowledge either. Um, I have, <clears throat> pardon me, I have not watched a lot of uh, either to be totally blunt and it's a little bit disappointing for the fans, but I actually think it helps me as an actor mm -hmm. because I don't get invested in what I hope, but I'm, I'm more easily able to do exactly what is needed of me mm -hmm. because I don't have the baggage of having a lot of opinions about it. And equally, it would be a benefit if I did, it would be a different type of benefit but what I love are the characters. I have played what I consider to be some of the coolest characters on earth. And I say that totally separate of me without ego, just with absolute shock that I got the chance to play them. Uh, I played Captain Lexus Singh mm -hmm. on Star Trek Renegades, which had we had expected would actually become the new CBS series. And in the end, that's not what happened. But our series is what sparked, reignited interest in having a series. Uh, but I loved it. I played the cat. I was the captain. Uh, it was a black ops team. So it was much darker than any previous Star Trek, which is also why we think, you know, people understood the love of that angle in a way that hadn't been allowed on Trek before. But I love it. I played the daughter of Khan. I was a genetic uh, creature uh, that had been created out of his DNA. 
And I was a fierce fighter. I was technically fighting for good because we were a black ops team for the Federation, but we were also able to do sort of darker, more underhanded things that were not normally allowed in the Trek universe and uh, was directed by um, Tim Russ, who was also in the uh, in the films. And I just, I loved, I had an absolute great time with it. You know, these were um, studio approved, but indie productions. So we had limited budgets, but what we were able to create on those budgets, I'm incredibly proud of, but mostly it's the character. I loved Lexa so much. Lexa scene was just incredibly cool. And then I think at this point I've done maybe six um, Star Wars projects. Um, I played daughter on the Clone Wars, which is this character who essentially it was a, a three episode arc that was the telling of the entire story of Star Wars, uh, the balance between good and evil, the force. So I played the light side of the force and that those characters have continued to live on in these sort of spiritual ways. Um, you could find them in the current TV series, mm -hmm. uh, multiple TV series that they they sort of show up in these very subtle ways that are, you know, reminiscent of those characters and those storylines. Uh, I also played Maris Brood in The Force Unleashed, which again was this incredibly cool character. Um, and that's, there's a bit of a heartbreak involved with that because when we were actually creating that series, uh, the series of video games, uh, those were the, the telling of the seven years between the two trilogies. And then after we created those, that, that entire project is when they decided to be making more films. Mm -hmm. And so we went from being canon to suddenly no longer canon. Oh. And that was a bit of a heartbreak and also a bit of a heartbreak because all the rumors stated that uh, had that series continued, the next game was actually supposed to be focused on my character and her background because she had been quite popular with the fandom and also was just a cool character. Everything that they wrote about her was really interesting. You know, she was a she was a Jedi, but when all the Jedis were murdered. She was left abandoned by herself on this planet and she went crazy. And when she went crazy is when she went to the dark side. And that's really fascinating. You know, she, it, it's just, there's a lot to play. It's an incredibly nuanced storyline that I still think they should bring back in some way because there's so much to explore. And it was just, it was really juicy um, to get to explore that and amazing to get to work on cutting edge technology and, you know, it was just, it was really lovely because it was not just voice work, but it was all motion capture. And, you know, that's a, a different kind of challenge and, you know, just lovely people that are, uh, one of the best things about working with artists is that when you are working with artists who also actually have a budget to work mm -hmm. with, it's this really magic synergy where, they not only have cool ideas, but they have the finances to be able to bring them to life. And so that was really lovely to be working with all of these incredible artists that were also supported by the budgets for the project. So that was really lovely. Right. Now, how did you get into creative consulting? Yeah, into creative what, I'm consulting. sorry? Oh, um, that's just something I've always done. Um, it's just, it's something that my brain is good at. Uh, I'm good at seeing what the disconnect mm -hmm. is. I'm good at finding plot holes. I'm good at finding places where the logic doesn't uh, match. 
So it's something I have done for my friends and colleagues since I joined the business. So I've been doing this officially probably since I was 20. But, uh, you know, it was almost always for free. Uh, but I would have friends who have cuts of their movies that they need a fresh pair of eyes on. And I'm the one that delivers the notes that actually make the difference, you know, that uh, and same thing with authors or screenplay writers mm. where I'm just able to look at something and find the disconnect and give them suggestions of ways that are realistic ways to fix them. Um, you know, I can sort of take the place of, uh, you know, like audience screenings because an audience, you get their reactions, which is great. But a lot of times the solutions that they offer are just untenable. They're unrealistic. And so I understand the filmmaking and the process of problem solving. And then that just sort of has gone on to become artistic in general. I love having creative conversations. And when I say creative, you, that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be artistic. It's that every human being is a creator. We are all creating our lives. And so I find that I'm a really safe place full of momentum for people that are trying to find clarity of what they want now. So whether that's with a current project or whether that's literally with this next chapter of their life. So in the pandemic, I made it official and started my own company, which is Plan A Media Group, which is at planamediagroup.com. And, you know, it definitely has a focus on artists be, um, of all kinds, creatives, I should say, of all kinds, because that's the industry I'm in. But the more that I continue with it, the broader my reach is. I work with executives. I work with, I mean, anybody, honestly, um, if you are just looking for a place to have conversations that really end up with momentum and answers for you. I find that I'm a really solid accountability partner and brainstorming partner. And uh, I think a lot of that goes back to acting skills because with acting, you have to find solutions in the moment and you have to find clarity and you have to find truth. Mm -hmm. Acting doesn't work unless you're finding the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are craving these things in their lives, but if they don't dedicate time to actually look at and answer current questions and really finesse and look at their, their deepest needs now, that they just continue to live the same life, even though they're craving something different. So I end up being a great space for people to reach out to, even if they don't even know exactly what it is they're wanting within my sessions are two hours long. And within that, we find what it is. Uh, oftentimes I will send questions and prompts ahead of time. And wow, um, it, it's just, it's really incredibly revealing. And, oh, these sessions are so satisfying because they're enjoyable because I refuse to do anything in my life that is not a, a good time. So my goal is that every session is fun and thrilling and exciting and interesting. And we have these incredible conversations where people walk away with clarity, whether it's about the specific project that they're in, trying to solve a plot point in their novel or an issue that's not working with their movie, why won't their movie sell? Or even things like they are ready to pitch their project or an executive ready to pitch their presentation. And I give them tips on how to do that so you're actually connecting with people in the room and really getting your ideas across. So it's fun. I love it. And I, uh, part of what I love is that I never quite know who to expect and what the issue is. And so that can be really exciting to just show up kind of blind mm -hmm. and 
by the end of it, we've really come up with some yummy things. So <laughs> I love that part. Now you've produced a lot. Now, if you were to compare that to acting, would you say producing is easier than acting or is acting easier than producing? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, uh, I would say acting is easier in one particular sense. It's easier because it's your one job. You have the one thing that you got to do and you have the resources surrounding you to hopefully be able to do that really well. Um, producing is interesting because producing is kind of just endless problem solving. <laughs> so, you know, you're just, it sort of never ends, you know, it's not as if you produce for a day and the project is ready. You are producing weeks, months, sometimes years before the project even starts. And sometimes weeks, months, and years after the project has ended, as you're trying to find home for homes for it, looking for, um, distribution, uh, trying to raise financing, uh, there's so many pieces and parts, and that's why it's not unrealistic that it could take a project 10 years to get to the screen. That's kind of the average of when the idea starts, when you have a script you're happy with, when you have the resources you're happy with, when you have the cast attached and the uh, timing secured to be able to make it. And then once you've made it, that's still only half the process. You then have all the post-production and then when it's finally locked, you then have to try to sell it. And then once you sell it, you then have to have all the marketing and, you know, find a way to reach your audience. So it's a really ginormous task. So, you know, when you're acting, you have a beginning, middle and end of when you're acting. Mm -hmm. But producing just is a significantly bigger um, outlay of time and energy. So, uh, you know, which is not to say that acting is not incredibly exhausting because, you know, acting, uh, there's a pressure because you have to meet your days. You only have your locations for this time. You are losing light. And if you don't get this scene before the sun sets, you are, you've, you know, the project doesn't work. So there's different kinds of pressures, but the pressures have an end date, you know, that's very specific. So I think that's, there's a freedom in that that's really great. Now you said you remember the making of it. Do you of Zena? Do you remember any of the bloopers that really stand out in your head? Oh sure, I have a pretty epic one that for a while I was too embarrassed to tell. But it was my very first working day. It was the first day on set. I had this incredibly complicated, amazing but incredibly complicated costume that literally took forty five minutes to get on me because it was uh, lots of armor and trying to fit it and all this stuff. So anyway, um, it was the it was the opening fight scene of Livia was the first scene that I shot. And there's this, I'm a dancer, so I'm quite flexible. <clears throat> and they had incorporated that into the fight choreography. So one of the um, immediate moves is that I feel an enemy coming towards me and I turn around and I kick him in the chin. And so it's a very high kick. So it's the very first day, it's late in the day, they're running late, we have to get this shot, the sun is setting, we have to get it. And so, at, you know, lights, camera, action, I turn around, I kick this guy in the chin, and then I immediately freeze. And the director is freaking out because what am I doing? What is this, you know, this? it's his first day working with me. I, I'm sure in that moment, I looked like a total flake to him. But what he did not know is that when I kicked that guy in the chin, my pants had split in two. Oy. So I literally could not move 
without giving all kinds of a show that I did not want to share. <laughs> so I just sort of froze. And the, I was like, I need to see wardrobe. I need to see wardrobe. And wardrobe rushes over and I tell them what has happened. And they drug me into one of those little huts that was, you know, sort of part, one of the village scenes. And uh, I, because the costume was so complicated, they didn't have time to take my costume off and they did not yet have other pants or anything. And even my boots, they, you know, they, it took forever to lace these knee high boots up. So instead what they did is they just pulled my pants down around my knees and they're sewing them between my knees actively <laughs> at the moment. And then the director is, he still doesn't understand what's happening. So he kind of, you know, is really mad and, you know, stomping over to see what, why I'm freaking out and why I'm in the middle of this, you know, in this, in this little hut. And then he sticks his head in it. There's two women sewing, you know, between my knees as my pants are around my ankles. And uh, he was like, oh, sorry, sorry. I get it. I get it. And, you know, so we quickly fixed that issue and finished the scene. And the next day I had pants made out of stretchy material. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now we get into the part of the show where we learn about you as a person. With Ooh, exciting. So we'll start off with where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up mostly in Missouri. I also lived in Arizona for about seven years and Arkansas and t- for two years. All right. What motivates you, inspires you, and drives you? I believe as human beings, we are here to thrive. And I want to enjoy my life as much as possible. And I want everyone else to as well. All right. What's the best compliment you've ever gotten? that I make people feel safe and seen, that I'm very good at witnessing people. All right. What's your biggest failure and what did you learn from that experience? Oh, failure is a hard one. I'm changing my relationship with that because I would like to believe that everything happens for a reason and that our failures are specifically road, um, they're like moments to allow us to learn the lesson Mm -hmm. we needed to learn. So, I think if anything, my failures are not learning more quickly, (laughs) needing to learn the same lesson more than once. All right. Tell me about three influential people in your life and how they impacted you. Ooh, that's fantastic. Um, uh, I love writers. I absolutely love writers. So I I could list a hundred, but let's say Maya Angelou. I absolutely love her work. Um, then I would say, this is, I'm cheating, but I'm going to say the women in my family. Um, I, uh, my maternal, my my mother, my grandmother uh, on my mom's side and my grandmother on my dad's side were both, uh, pardon me, all three very influential as well as aunts and et cetera. I had lovely people in my life. So I'm kind of cheating by right. including more than three, but we'll just sort of leave it there. All right. What makes you feel inspired or like your best self? Fantastic music, uh, nature. I'm a huge nature lover and movement. Uh, Growing up as a dancer, if I'm really feeling settled in my body, then all feels right with me. All right. Finish the sentence. I'm at my best when? I've had a fantastic night of sleep and I'm excited about the events of the day. All right. If you can turn back time and talk to your 18-year-old self, what would you tell her about where you are now in life? 
Wow, this is a tough one because the older I get, the more I think that we show up knowing everything we needed to learn and then somehow we forget it all and then spend the rest of our lives trying to remember it again. So I had some really magnetic magic at 18 before I had experienced a lot of rejection that I wish I still had. So I would tell her to hold on to that. Okay. If you can have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? I would tear that billboard down and burn it. I hate billboards. I want to look at nature, not signage. Okay. What do you think the world will look like in five years from now? Oh, I don't know, but I hope it's a glorious, beautiful surprise. Um, you know, there's so much scariness in the world, especially if you're looking at the news. Um, but I also love that as humans, we are constantly solving problems and finding solutions. And so I am excited to see what solutions we find over the next five years. All right. What was your favorite subject in school? I was a big social studies person. I think I'm really fascinated with people and uh, also history. Love history. All right. Would you consider yourself an introvert, an extrovert, or an ambivert? I got to say, it depends on the day. <laughs> I'm a bit of a homebody. I love to be at home, but I certainly love people um, and love to be out. I, I just have to have a, a time limit on it. All right. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be and why? That I make people feel great. All right. Now, tell me about where you are now in life. Oh, in some ways, I feel like I'm just at the beginning. Um, I'm really excited about what this next chapter is. Uh, I refuse to let there be any fear, but I also feel like I have absolutely no idea what it could be. So I'm choosing to be very, very excited about that and see. I expect a lot of, of delicious change in my life in the next decade. All right. Now we get to the part of the show where everyone loves to hear the famous questions, but I want to remind people to please share this episode, like it, and comment down below. All right. What is your favorite word? Yes. What is your least favorite word? No. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, and emotionally? Compassion. What turns you off? Selfishness. What is your favorite curse word? Fuck. What sound or noise do you love? Birdsong. What sound or noise do you hate? Traffic and helicopters. What is your favorite color? Blue. What is your least favorite color? Uh, that like, um, putrid mustard yellow, like it, it's not even mustard. It's something other than that, but it's like a really, it's, it's aggressively, I hate it. <laughs> All right. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? <sighs> oh, this one's so tough for me. Uh, it's the beauty about acting as I get to try on all of these hats. So I kind of get to do it. Um, but I would say some type of explorer. All right. What profession would you not like to do? 
Anything involving the sewer. <laughs> if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome. Would you like to stay a while or go back? <laughs> when you arrive at heaven, who would you like to meet? Oh, everyone. Everyone. I just expect the afterlife is a party where you get to, I mean, all the historical figures, all everyone. It would be, oh, I yeah, into it. Super into it. All right. Since you're producing, what movies would you recommend that you're producing? You uh, Would you recommend my audience catch you? Catch, catch you? Um, catch. Uh, are you looking for new things? Anything new, anything oh. old? Oh, well, I'll just recommend a couple of my favorites. Um, uh, for those who are into or just open to the idea of uh, older films, I absolutely love The Philadelphia Story. It just, it's one of my favorites. It's a Katherine Hepburn film. And I just find it so charming. It's just the the staccato of the dialogue is really just fantastic. Um, and I also, I get really fascinated with what I like to call tiny movies. And every year there's a couple of them where it's just, uh, where they're incredibly engaging, but they are like two people in one location or something like that. Uh, there is, oh gosh. You're going to have to supply this information at the end, but there is a movie called The Disappearance of Alice something, but I cannot remember her last name, but it's three people in the entire movie, and I find it absolutely genius. Kind of like the King's Speech. It's only two people throughout the entire the entirety of the play we saw. It's only him and his one and his helper, and it's just those two people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And finally, where can people find out more about you and what projects you have coming up? Oh, I love that. Uh, so the best place is my website, adrianwilkinson.com. From there, you can find all my social media, though generally that's my handle is at yo Adrian W on pretty much every platform. Uh, and then lastly, you can find this from my website, but my consulting site is planamediagroup.com. And that's it, everyone. That was Adrian Wilkinson. I'm Reed Miles, and I'll see you in the next one. See you there, everybody. You and I were hiding in our rooms while the sky burned, getting high off of the fumes, feeling like the bombs outside were flowers. Me and you. Watching through the glass as the moon came Bodies holding hands, feeling truly like our lives are movies I swear it's all a dream, no need to be afraid Someday we'll fall asleep and won't recall things Some believe there's no escape, like paint's poster But I just don't agree, I love the way we see the world